Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello, welcome back to the Priesthood Dispatchers podcast. The episode you're about to listen to is number 11 in our After Dinner Chat series. And our guest is truly one of world renown, Margaret Toscano. Some say the seventh excommunication in the September 6th. Margaret gives us a great rundown of what led up to that time and her scholarship that resulted in her being excommunicated from the Mormon Church. The episode was taped on January 7th, 2022. So, without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome back to Priesthood Dispatches. Um, for those returning to the channel, welcome back. Hope you had a great Christmas and a happy new year. For those who have never been here before, please like and subscribe, share the channel. Um, there are a couple of important links down in the description that we need to get to straight away. The first one is a link to a Google Drive. In that Google Drive, you will find five uh, PDF documents, and these are um, articles from our guest who we have with us this evening, Margaret Toscano. Um, these articles speak about Heavenly Mother um, and uh, Joseph Smith's speaking of Heavenly Mother, etc. They will be referenced this evening in the interview, but you can find them there. So if you want to pull them up now, by all means do so, um, or if you want to pull them up and download them at a later date, they're there and I'll leave them there for a good few months, um, probably forever, if I'm honest. Uh, but yeah, and if there um, are any other articles you think you'd like to get a hold of, uh, you can email me um, on the email below or uh, pop it in uh, the message box. Another link, if you'd like to leave a tip, um, you can either use the QR code just above Margaret there, or there's a link in the description below. Um, and you, like a few others, thank you so much to those that did send a tip at Christmas. My children had uh, chocolate ice cream rather than just vanilla this year, uh, and they were extremely excited by that. But to the matter at hand, Margaret Toscano, a couple of weeks ago we had your husband Paul visit with us and share some um, extremely interesting stories from his side uh, of your fellow coin but this evening we are going to get what i think is a much needed download of heavenly mother and women and the priesthood in the actual church um, so you look at the church today and you could pretty much say there is a heavenly mother but we don't speak about her and there is no such thing as women and the priesthood what Margaret is going to tell us this evening is that that is bunkum and that until a certain time, that, that was a thing. So but we'll, we'll get there. How are you doing, Margaret? I'm doing just great. Thank you, James, for having me on your show. I really appreciate being here with you. No, fantastic. Thank you for your time. Um, so for those um, that aren't aware of Margaret's current whereabouts, uh, she's in Utah at the University of Utah. Um, and is a lecturer there looking after some of the finer minds in the state. Uh, Margaret comes from pioneer heritage. And when I say pioneer heritage, I'm talking the very roots of Mormonism. 
um, up to seven generations. And to me, that's unreal because I'm a second generation Mormon here in the UK. But over there, some of you think you've got pioneer heritage, but Margaret has got you beat because there is a very real possibility that Margaret has um, a, a relation that was married to the one that only Joseph Smith. Um, but that's not what tonight's about. But I think that's like a massive badge of honor <laughs> to be worn by any Mormon. Yeah, I don't know if it's a badge of honor or not, but I certainly have uh, Mormon ancestors who joined the church in the 1830s, in the Ohio period, in the Missouri period, in the Nauvoo period. So, yes, <laughs> I do have those ancestors that go way back. And, you know, my great great grandfather who was in the Mormon battalion. So I have all of that. Wow. And, and that, so I was, yeah, I, you can see my, I'm here at my University of Utah office where I'm a professor. Um, I teach uh, Latin and Greek and classical languages and literature and all sorts of religious studies issues. So I'm very pleased to be here, James. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we can talk about it all evening. I think one of the things is a lot of the viewers are post-Mormon. So we're quite happy to talk about uh, some things that are probably seen to be more reverent and unspoken of, um, sacred, not secret, as they might say. But we're, we're no holds barred. So you tell us however as it I is. I told you, you can ask me anything. Whether we, I answer we, is another issue, but I'm, yeah, open well, it, we, no holds barred. We will not cut you off and we will not excommunicate you this evening. Um, <laughs> We, we were just speaking before this, everyone, and a thought that I had after speaking with Margaret for a while was that had Margaret existed within um, the church at the time of the Spanish Inquisition or the Salem witch trials, she would have been burnt at the stake. Um, <laughs> because that, that, as we speak about her story tonight, that is exactly what the church did. They went to their fullest extent to discredit and, um, yeah, to hide the scholarship of uh, of margaret but we'll we'll get there one thing for everyone to note if you're on youtube in the uh, comment section there is a poll tonight and the question is if you ever heard uh, mother of mother in heaven the topic of mother in heaven being spoke about at church so if you simple yes or no and then we'll take a look at the uh, the results to that later i think we kind of know where it's going to be um but i just thought it was interesting we'd, we'd have a quick poll but margaret let's fly back to your single days in your late teens and the, i guess when i say late teens i'm talking you you're 18 you become a member of the relief society and um you're not yet married and everything's great you're a super TBM. I've got a note here that says you were never TBM. So this I is was never TBM. At. I'm sorry. What, what was <laughs> so your? Can I talk about that? So yeah. first of all, when I was 18, so I uh, I grew up in Mesa, Arizona. Again, an old Mormon pioneer family that settled Arizona. And then when I was 18, I went to BYU as a freshman. And I, I would never describe myself as a as a TBM because um, even as a teenager, I was very much one who questioned. Um, I liked thinking about myself as an intellectual. <laughs> so I, when, when I went to BYU, 
Um, I went to BYU. I won't go into all the reasons, but my sister was already there and I wanted to kind of be with her there. And, but I was one that began to question, you know, when I was at BYU, I remember, for example, we were always required to take a religion class every semester, right? Yeah. And one of the religion classes I signed up for was world religions because I wanted to understand about world religions. And I was an English major, a history minor. I was just fascinated with uh, intellectual history. I was an avid reader. I was questioning everything. So, and, you know, questioning my faith in God while I was a freshman at BYU. So, um, yeah, I, I never really fit into that picture. And you asked about being a member of the Relief Society. I mean, I'm old. Way back when I went to BYU in the early 1970s, um, at first, you didn't really think about, you know, when I was in, um, when I was in high school, young women weren't, you weren't part of the Relief Society. Then you went to BYU and yeah, you were a member of the Relief Society, but you know, it was all being part of a group of college age girls. So it was not the same as being kind of with older women. It was just part of the social life at BYU. But I very early in the 1970s, I, I sometimes like to say it's kind of interesting that uh, before I married Paul, um, I, was, I was married before and this boyfriend before he came became my husband, he was really interested in Mormon history and documents his name was Guy Potter, and um, actually he was British. <laughs> and through him, I met a lot of the researchers. I met Mike Quinn. I met Mike Quinn probably in 1971. So I started learning about um, some of the problematic areas of church history while I was an undergrad at BYU. And interestingly, because I was a, a seeker and not a true believing Mormon, for me, it was like, wow, this is an interesting religion. This is more exciting than what I heard about in Sunday school. I think I might kind of stay around and find out what else I can about Mormonism if we have all these crazy things that happened in the past. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. And I think most people would be scared by that, especially um, <laughs> when, you know, e even today you hear when you're a TBM, when I was TBM at least, you hear about all the things on the internet, even as a missionary, I'd be handing people pass along cards that'd have like uh, mormon.org on the bottom of it. And I'd, I'd pray to God that they wouldn't go to the internet and put the words Mormon into a Google search because I knew that there was loads of stuff out there. I didn't know what it was, but I knew that an investigator was never going to listen to me if they'd already read uh, some version of the CES letter or something like that. Um, my mission was a lot, lot longer ago, but just at the beginning of the internet. But to have those things actually given to you by um, a, an authority, you know, like Quinn, and to be able to say that's interesting rather than I've been lied to for 20 years. <laughs> you know, that's... Yeah, I mean, I... I... You know, I guess that my response was not really I've been lied to, although I suppose that was the underlying um, message that the church had been, you know, covering over things. Yeah. Um, but I guess that because I was more the type who didn't um, 
see the leaders as the ultimate authority or the ultimate truth that it it didn't it didn't make me feel betrayed i think in the way that some people do who have just heard the kind of sunday school picture all their lives um I don't know why, I mean, I don't know why. I think from an early age, I had a sense of my own spiritual authority and I had a sense of trusting my own inclinations and voice. And so I questioned leaders very young. In fact, I remember when I was at BYU hearing Spencer W. Kimball, who of course is famous for the miracle of forgiveness, or as we used to like to joke, it's a miracle if you can get forgiven after you've read that book. But I remember him giving a talk about sex and lust at BYU, and he defined lust as any kind of sexual feeling or activity outside of marriage. And I just remember feeling at the time, well, that's not true. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. You know, you can, because I had a boyfriend that, <laughs> my boyfriend who became my husband, and you know, the sexual feelings I had for him, it was like, it's, it's more complicated than that. I just don't yeah. believe that. So I, I suppose, I don't know why, but you know, when I was at BYU, I questioned leaders very early. Yeah. So I didn't have that sense of trusting, 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 and then betrayal. I had the, my journey was more questioning, 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 is there a place for me here in this church that doesn't seem to want a person either the quit, especially a woman who questions and a woman who wants to find out more about the history. So my journey was quite different, I think, than a lot of other people that I talk to who are in the church and then leave. Okay. Well, because I started in, I started in a different place, I guess you could say. And that's where I wanted to come to because there were two very different Margarets. I think the the kind of nuanced um, idea that you had has always been there. But from some research and reading some um, previous interviews that you've given, um, I'm about to nail you with what you've said in the past. That's what we do to all church okay. leaders. Go ahead. Isn't it? Go ahead and nail me because I, I, I don't know which one I can see coming, but it's okay. No, it's, it's, um, there was a turning point for you. You didn't start from a feminist point of view. Um, in in your early days, um, kind of, I'm going to say pre-21, um, because the turning point I've kind of put my finger on, and obviously it's your life, so you'll tell me if I'm wrong, was when you attended the temple at the age of 21. But mm -hmm. before then, uh, what I thought was interesting, uh, listening to some of your older interviews, was your idea that the Book of Mormon um, kind of influenced you and gave you uh, the kind of uh, patriarchal view, even as a sister in the gospel, when people said, you know, why aren't there sisters in the leadership and different things? Well, look at the Book of Mormon. It, it shows us that it was the brethren who did this. It was the brethren who did that. And the sisters did something else. Um, but it was later on that your view, you, you had that shift. Right. So maybe I could explain it like this. And, um, and maybe this shows sort of the tension in my own journey. 
on the one hand, as I've described, you know, as a teenager, I saw myself as an intellectual. I was questioning, questioning everything. I went to BYU. Uh, at first, I wasn't really concerned about women's issues. Uh, in a sense, I mean, these are the early 70s, and I was sort of blind to the issues. I gradually became more aware of them. Um, but when, so I had kind of two things happen to me simultaneously that I'm sure I've talked about in other interviews. One was that um, I started to, I did start in the early 70s to question my role as a woman. It was like, you know, is there a place for me here in the church when I, um, I'm an intellectual, I'm, I, I, I want certain things. And in some ways I identified more with men because I was really interested in, 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 the, in theology and doctrine. And as I read about things, I started thinking, why should I be excluded from the priesthood? If you read in the scriptures, um, Abraham who desires, you know, a greater fullness, you know, it is seen as a good desire. Why is that desire wrong for women? Why is it wrong for women to desire priesthood? If priesthood is the power of godliness, why is that wrong for women to desire priesthood? So I began to question, you know, my role as a woman. At the same time, I was sort of going through an existential crisis. And in reading the Book of Mormon, I had a spiritual experience where I felt the love of God. So, you know, for me, my search led me to an kind of a, uh, you might say a, um, it, it led me to this place where I felt God's love and God's power. And I know for a lot of people in their searching after intellectual things, they kind of get led in the other direction to an atheism. And who knows why I had that experience. But in reading the Book of Mormon, I certainly didn't think of the Book of Mormon as justifying men's power. I never okay. thought that. For me, what I discovered in the Book of Mormon was grace, the grace of God. That the grace of God, the love of God was bigger than the church. In the church, you felt condemnation. If you had sexual sin, you're condemned. If you you know, desire things that you shouldn't desire, like a woman desiring priesthood, you felt condemned. Um, so in the, in the, at BYU and in the church, I would feel condemned for any of my feelings or desires that were outside of the norms that they prescribed. But when I read the scriptures, what I felt was God's love. Now, again, who knows why I felt that? I mean, you can always question it. Believe me, I, I sometimes call myself either a believing doubter or a doubting believer because I'm, I'm the person who doubts everything. I mean, I can go back and say, you know, were those spiritual experiences I had real? Were they just in my mind? I don't know. But at the time when I experienced that in my 20s while I was at BYU, it gave me, um, it gave me a sense of my own value as an individual. It reinforced this sense that I could trust my own um, judgment and my own intuition, and I didn't have to rely on the leaders. That however I felt condemned with at BYU, either for 
being a 20s and not married yet or you know wanting priesthood or you know seeking after intellectual things where you know the church might say that was dangerous my experience on the spiritual level was to say that god validated all of that and that i was okay and that i was loved enormously that i had the sense of infinite love for me and that any that no condemnation at all from god which was opposite of the church so i had that experience in reading the book of mormon the other thing i experienced when i first had my endowments in the temple as you referred to is that i had a sense again you know was it a real spiritual experience just my desire my imagination who knows but at the time i felt that i had been endowed with real priesthood i so i had on the one hand experiences in the church where there's always this confining this this judgment and then my experiences in ritual and personal study were the opposite an opening up to more and but as part of that james and maybe this goes back to answer i started to have a real search because i wanted to answer the question is there going to be a place for me in this religion? If it is this kind of patriarchal structure that the church describes, then I won't fit here. So I began to study the scriptures and the words of Joseph Smith to see if I could find anything within the theology and history of the church that would give me a place that I could function as a, a woman who, had, who, who saw things in a broader way than the church defined. And of course, the conclusion is, is that in terms of the sort of theology, I did find a place for myself in terms of the structure of the church. Eventually, it led to my excommunication. No, unfortunately. As, as soon as I started writing and saying, look, there are all of these things that could paint another picture. The church does not have to take this conservative position. As soon as I found that and started writing, my first speech was in 84. My first publication was in 85. Immediately, I was in trouble with the church. And of course, eventually that led to my excommunication where the high priesthood council that, that tried me told me they had to excommunicate me because they didn't want anybody to believe me. Yeah, and, and we will get there because there's okay. some- I, I jumped ahead. It's okay, right? it's okay. I, I jumped ahead. <laughs> But it's very true. It's it's like what I was saying about the uh, the witch trials, and it kind of comes back to the whole miracle of forgiveness um, <laughs> debacle. Not only in the past, but this week it's been a big thing with the miracle of forgiveness being taken off the shelves of Deseret Book. I'm sure it wasn't that dramatic, but it's no longer. You you. Mm -hmm. It's not just a miracle that you can be forgiven. It's a miracle that you can get hold of a copy. Um, <laughs> so if if there were book burnings, I can see Russell M. Nelson. Um, dancing around in his magic underwear, burning the miracle of forgiveness. Um, <laughs> and of and course, open... that's, one of the thing, that's one of the things that, that really bothers me about the leaders. I mean, they're constantly hiding the past. It's not just the past of the 19th century, right? Yeah. But it's like, oh, oh, it was only Brigham Young that taught that blacks were inferior. Oh, it was only, you know, oh, did we ever teach all of that stuff in miracle of forgiveness? They, they, they're always denying everything, you know, and they um, want us to have amnesia. <laughs> that's it, isn't it? The memory hole is a very real thing. And mm -hmm. 
when when I was called as a, a young bishop, my dad gave me a beat up copy of the Miracle of Forgiveness, and he said, "Make sure you read it all. Don't just read the first half because you will want to like you won't be happy with yourself. You need to read the second half and forgive yourself." Uh, so I I read it, but what it gave me was um, almost like a a righteous indignation that I, as a priesthood holder, was now able as a judge in Israel to dish out these um these lashes uh, and that i was doing a good thing and it was basically the miracle in my opinion the miracle of forgiveness was the handbook for the abuser in an abusive relationship it was sad to me yeah it was so sad to me okay to do these things because we're we're coming from uh, a good place we're doing it for a good reason where in in the end that's like um I'm sure there's Netflix shows about that where, uh, you know, people go to prison. But if we go back to the 70s, uh, we've got the... <laughs> yeah, let's go back to the 70s. Let's go back to the 70s. We've got the women's rights movement, uh, the women's rights movements um, that were happening. And am I right to say that you, you weren't involved in that yet, um, but the church did get very involved in the fact that they uh, chose sisters to send um, to these uh, meetings and rallies, etc., as kind of plants almost. Yeah, and I wasn't involved in that. I mean, I was at BYU and I was single when those things were happening where the church was doing the anti-ERA movement. And because I was more interested in theology and kind of intellectual things, I really wasn't involved in the political issues of feminism of that period, of the period of Sonia Johnson. Um, The first time that I identified myself as a feminist actually was in 1976. And ironically, uh, it happened at BYU because Eloise Bell, who was an English professor, gave a talk at the big forum for all students. I don't think she'd be allowed to do this anymore where she talked about why feminism is compatible with the gospel and the church and that, you know, the church should embrace feminism. And I mean, what I realized when I heard her talk, I was, uh, I was a grad student at the time and I was teaching, but I went to hear her talk. Um, and I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I'm a feminist. I have been for years. I just didn't know it, <laughs> right? Because I've been doing all this questioning and you know, really upset about women's issues. And I'm telling you, I don't know how, if, how much it's changed, but in the early 1970s, women were so subordinated to men in every way at BYU. And it just bothered me all the time. It was so upsetting to me. So when I heard this talk, I thought, oh, I'm a feminist. (laughs) And I embraced it (laughs) and continued my research. Yeah, but I I wasn't involved in the ERA. But yeah, unfortunately, the church did a lot of nasty things, which they really repeated again in in their campaign against same-sex marriage, both in California and Arizona. It, what was that in like 2008 or something yeah. um, where they did all this sneaky behind the scenes maneuvering to try to defeat, you know, any kind of, of actions that were being made. So they did that in the early seventies with the ERA and I think helped defeat it, unfortunately. Um, and then in the early two thousands, they were doing that with same sex marriage. So, 
you know, they have a bad record on that. But would, would I be correct? I'm just remembering this now because I think I've heard a, an argument before that um, Utah was the most um, forward kind of thinking state in the union with regards to feminism because they were the first state to give women the vote. Um, if someone, if someone in the uh, the chat, I'm sure will either correct me or give me that information. But the the argument that I heard, at least, was that they were the first to give the vote, um, which makes them amazing. But then, obviously, we know later that they they fought against these things. But the reason that they gave them the vote was um, so they could push through some sort of vote, and they've got all these polygamous wives. So there was plenty of sisters. That they could uh, tell how to vote. And, well, uh, and that... I, I mean, I think, I don't know if we'll get back to this, but in terms of the Mormon women. Oh. Hello, everyone. If we still have you, Margaret is coming back. I think she uh, just had a slight technical there. Hi, oh. Margaret. You're okay, back. Okay, good. I, I didn't touch anything one way or the other, right? But here I am. Okay. Um, so, um, let me think. I lost track of what I was saying here. So, um, what were you we talking about, James? I got lost. Uh, we, we were talking about the the women's rights movements and the oh, fact the that the right movement. But, oh, oh, the nineteenth century. So, yeah. if you look at the nineteenth century, I think it's an oversimplification to say that women they gave women the vote in the nineteenth century just to pass polygamy issues. It's not true. If you look at the history of nineteenth century Mormon women. Um, it's well, it's always complicated, but I'm the I'm the scholar, right? Right, who always says it's complicated and nuanced. But, but no, it really was. I mean, and we can talk about this in relationship to priesthood too. The women who were endowed by Joseph Smith, who were part of the found the original founding of the Relief Society, they saw themselves as priestesses of God, and they saw the Relief Society as a priesthood organization and they saw the they felt that they had the right to vote because that was part of the restoration of all things where women had to be restored to their rightful place the women in late 19th century utah and early 20th century utah they had a publication called the woman's exponent and the subtitle was for the rights of the women of Zion and for all the world. They were very committed to the notion that women should have equal civil rights. And they were, they were really adamant and progressive um, about the right to vote and the rights of women. And unfortunately, those women who were so committed to this got put in their place and squelched around 1905 by church leaders. And I mean, if you want to come back, I, I have some interesting quotes in relationship to that. So it's ironic in a way that, yeah, I mean, it was never like, oh, the 19th century was like this glorious time and women had this great place, but it was much more they had many more rights than they do now in the church. <clears throat> and then it was all taken away from them 
And I think some good things have happened lately that kind of restore part of that. So it's been kind of a give and take, quite frankly. So, I mean, again, I hate it when the church tries to claim that they were so wonderful about giving the women the vote in 19th century because the church leaders were always trying to control women and keep them under the priesthood. And there's this huge fight in the late 19th century and early 20th century between the Relief Society leaders and the church leaders about what the role of women was. And basically the women got put down. Yeah. Well, it, in 1905, you say that that was some kind of turning point at which point the, the church put their foot down and extinguished this, um, I guess, the, the same way they did with yourself, with Kelly Cates later. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the brethren decided that you were a threat to their authority. Oh, yeah. I mean, can I just quickly give you the two examples that happened in 1905? Yes, please. So it had to do um, with, the, with uh, the promises that Joseph Smith had given to the women of Nauvoo. And the, the wording, um, so it's interesting, Bathsheba Smith, who was the Relief Society president in 1905, she made the statement. I, I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget it. Joseph gave us everything, every order of priesthood and instructions of how we to use it. And he, she, they also said in 1905 that the founding of the Relief Society was to make complete the organization of the church by organizing the women in the order of the priesthood. So the big debate, that was what Bathsheba Smith said in the Women's Magazine in 1905. And then like a few months later, the Relief Society, they made a correction where they said, oh, we were not organized in the order of the priesthood. We were order, or organized by the order of the priesthood. So the whole question, and it's interesting, it seems like a, a small thing, but these women, they were claiming that the Relief Society was a priesthood organization and that they had the priesthood and that they could function in the priesthood through the Relief Society and that the church was not complete without women's priesthood. That was what they believed. Then the church leaders, by making them change it, it was like, no, you're not organized in the order of the priesthood. You're not part of the priesthood. You're only organized in, as an auxiliary by male yeah. priesthood leaders, and you don't have priesthood. So it, that point, 1905, 1906, I see as a real turning point. And I think it gets worse. Then later, now there's this idea like, well, uh, Dallin Oaks has said, women have power and authority of priests, but they don't have keys or offices. So we're kind of back in this debate again. Mm -hmm. What is women's relationship to the priesthood? But of course, anybody who says like I did, women have the right to the fullness of the priesthood that's what both the temple and all the theology points to and then later ordained women where there's an advocating for women being ordained then they say um then they say oh oh no you know women do not have a right to priesthood yes you can have delegated power but you cannot have keys and offices whereas i argued and this was one of the main reasons from excommunication, women have received the keys of the fullness of the priesthood. They should be ordained. And by the way, somebody put in the chat, I noticed Boyd Packer wanted me excommunicated. 
And he said, and it was because of what I had written more about priesthood than even about Heavenly Mother, because they see the idea of women having priesthood as the greatest threat to them. They, they don't want women to have that independent right to the priesthood. And so, you know, he, Boyd Packer wanted me out so that they, no one would believe my research on this history of women's relationship to the priesthood. I think if, if I'm correct, didn't he uh, say to one of your priesthood leaders something along the lines of, can't you control that woman? <laughs> that was exactly it. My uh, uh, Boyd Packer, you know, called up my state president and wanted him to hold a disciplinary council on me. He said, yeah, can't you control that woman? So yeah. back in 1993 with the September 6, I was actually threatened at that time. And I was given an ultimatum where I was told um, that I was not allowed to um, write, speak, publish, discuss anything to do with church history or doctrine, or they would hold this church. I, I call them church courts because they are. They would hold a church court on me if I didn't completely talk, speak, stop speaking. And I just said, no, I'm not going to do it. And, you know, that was when Boyd Packer said to my state president, can't you control that woman? <laughs> yeah, but they, they evidently did. he couldn't, although they could kick me out. Right. They did have that ability. Yeah. Well, and eventually they uh, they did. But they did start to censure you even before 1993. Um, and that you uh, following work, um, sorry, following your study at BYU, um, eventually, you became a lecturer at BYU, um, and were work. You were working there at the time that there was a public debate about women and the priesthood, and that you felt that you would be able to go along um, to a debate with six hundred people, and stand up as a lecturer from BYU, and. Uh, as part of the debate, you would be on the, the pro side for women in the, the priesthood. Um, and you thought that you could win that debate and <laughs> that there would be no uh, repercussions. But um, yeah, they, they promptly fired you from BYU, which they did. was yeah, difficult. So I think it's interesting. I don't know if I thought I could do it without any repercussions because um, I'd already had several experiences of being silenced, right? But Right. So I had I started teaching for BYU uh, while I was working on my master's degree. So I've been teaching since the late 70s. And then um, in 1989, as part of the Mormon Women's Forum, which had been uh, started in 1988, and I was part of the group that started the Mormon Women's Forum, which was supposed to be a place where we could talk freely about gender issues. So in 1989, we had a public debate on should women be ordained? And it was, we had two people arguing for and two people arguing against. And I was one of the ones arguing for. And there were, there were 600 people there. It was held at East High School here in Salt Lake. And it was covered by the TV and radio stations and the newspapers. And um just a little bit after i participated in that debate they promptly canceled all of my classes that i was supposed to teach in the upcoming semester at byu so i've been teaching at byu for 14 years and suddenly i am fired and dismissed 
And of course they did it in a very underhanded, sneaky way. They, they almost never will directly face you. At least they finally faced me in that, in that you know, excommunication trial, right? But so often everything I'd experienced before that, they would just do these sneaky things and that's what they did. They suddenly just canceled all of my classes. I was ready to teach for the new semester. And suddenly my name was removed from the schedule. Yeah, I mean, 14 years in a job, um, you'd anticipate that there would be some kind of sit down um, where they said, well, we're kind of thinking that what you did the other day wasn't amazing. And we, <laughs> we don't want to give that message from an established lecturer here at right. BYU thinking, right? <laughs> yeah you know, you know what I mean and where, where there would be an actual chance for you to say oh yeah I'm sorry um you know I'll well, I'll I, rein it in or or whatever yeah and I and I feel I mean even like the the involvement of Boyd Packer in both Paul's excommunication and in mine one of the things that's so disturbing is they do not face you directly you know, they don't follow the directions of the Doctrine and Covenants that says you should be able to face your accuser, right? Yeah. They do these sneaky things and they stab you in the back. And that was my experience at BYU. I have to say it was extremely painful because I had taught there for so long. And then to suddenly just be dismissed without any kind of communication is, I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of a, a, a violence, I think. Um, I noticed that way back on the chat, somebody put in something about the Care Bear sister, and maybe I should bring in that reference since you say there's there's nothing you know uh, you can't you can say anything here. But when I was excommunicated, I actually went by myself. I didn't have anybody go with me. And when I came home and told Paul and my daughters that I'd been excommunicated, uh, <laughs> Paul and and I described this bizarre experience of them you know, at the very end saying, wow, you're such a, you're such a nice lady. Uh, we thought you'd be a lot more, they thought, they kind of thought of a feminist as kind of this angry, mean woman. I was going to, you know, kind of somehow, I don't know if I was going to sock them in the face or what, but they would say, oh, you're just so nice, but oh yeah, you're excommunicated. And when I describe this bizarre experience of them being so polite at the same time that they're, you know, excommunicating you, cutting off your temple blessings, uh, negating your baptism, according to them, Paul said, "It sounds like you were gang raped by the Care Bears." Oh my gosh! <laughs> so, and I actually published that statement someplace. Um, so, uh, but somebody just said, "Was I excommunicated before Paul?" No, I wasn't. No, we're, we're going to get there as well. I'm just oh, okay. Saying I'm before... sorry. I keep jumping ahead, James. No, but, it's okay. No, just to quickly answer that, Paul but we'll come back paul was yeah. communicated first and then i was later but it's kind of bizarre why that happened like it did yeah no but the care bear thing is unreal that's yeah well, and that's so paul <laughs> those of you that have <laughs> heard paul talk he's very good at those little um those little statements right yeah. so but actually i think it was it, it's uh it's a uh, an image that i think fits that you're getting raped by the care bears yeah it is it is so true because one thing uh one justification i used to give to it was uh where we're told in the scriptures to kindly reprove and it was mormonism is the ultimate um oh passive aggressive mm -hmm. religion 
in the fact that we will tell someone to their face um, that we we're, <laughs> that that we're going to absolutely destroy their lives because that's what we're doing. We're going to excommunicate them, but we will tell them in a way that says that we love them and that we're doing this because we love them. We're doing it because we we know that you need a break from your covenants in order to repent of this not so awful thing that you've done um it's yeah ultimate passive-aggressive rape by a care bear is yeah it, it is very, the headline it is ultimate passive-aggressive and they honestly believe they're being kind i mean that was what i felt from these men they thought they were being kind but obviously they're not i mean not only and of course i don't believe that they have that they can actually cut you off from you know salvation um, because I think ultimately, you know, whether there is an afterlife or a God or whatever, if, if there is, then I think that's up to God, not them. But I mean, that's what the Book of Mormon says. Jesus yeah. is the keeper. Of, Jesus is the keeper of the gate and he, he employs no servant there, right? Yeah. They don't have the authority to actually ultimately cut anybody out. But on the other hand, um, on one level, it, it does do that. I mean, obviously, because I'm part of a big Mormon family, as soon as you're excommunicated, you are, you are, if not marginalized, you're cut off from your family. Because I had two degrees from BYU, I'm, I'm cut off from my, um, from my alma mater. Um, I'm cut off from, you know, people, even in Mormon studies, for those who still really identify with the church, they don't want to quote me. Yeah. Um, they don't want to acknowledge that I've written anything. So you are, you are cut off in so many ways. I mean, excommunication is a violent action and yeah. no matter what, how nice, softly they speak, it is a violent action. Yeah. And, uh, uh T.O. says here, excommunication has become a tool of unrighteous dominion exercise to silence speech. It's a signal of the institution's insecurity and weakness. So true. I agree. Yeah. And yeah. I think what, what you were saying there, for me, if they were to excommunicate me, I'd go just to tell them that they had no authority over me, that I give them no authority, um, that they're not affecting my life in the slightest. But the life they are affecting are my parents, who now think... Mm -hmm. Um, that I'm lost to them or my brothers and sisters mm -hmm. and, and my wider family who will see me differently. And I'm sure for you it was... And they uh, do see you time. differently, there's no question. Yeah. And, and you know, I, my father wasn't alive when I was excommunicated. My mother was, but she was a little senile. But I, it really, um, it, in a way, it, it broke my parents' heart, hearts, right? So it's, it's, it's very cruel to the members of your family as well as to you. And yeah. they, it, it's very hard for them. Um, it's very hard um, to, it's very, what am I trying to say here? It's very hard for family members to get beyond the fact that you've been excommunicated by leaders that they say are chosen of God. Yeah. And even though on one level, my siblings are not, you know, I think they kind of have a broader th thinking about things than a lot of members. 
they still have to deal with that conflict. If we are in the church and we are, you know, sustaining the leaders, how can I believe that Margaret is still a good person and sustain the leaders? It's a contradiction that really is so hard on family members. Yeah, and I think it's so sad that they hold such a big stick. But yeah. Yeah, it is. It's Sorry. very sad. It's, I'm just thinking about my family and how that might affect them. But then at the same time, should we be forced to live our life in a way uh, that we are subservient to this organization because they hold that stick to beat your loved ones with? Um, and they would say that they're not, that they're, you know, it's, it's your fault because you've not lived according to our rules. Mm-hmm. And I would say your rules don't matter to me because they're not real rules. They're just kind of ones that you're making up as you go along. Um, no, and I think it, it creates sort of a conundrum in a way, because on the one hand, I mean, I certainly don't want to go back to the church. I have no desire to be part of the church again. Um, and I do not believe that they have authority over me, right? Um, on the other hand, the excommunication still hurts. And that was sort of one of the strange things that I felt when I was excommunicated. On the one hand, I'm thinking, I mean, I went to the court because I wanted them to have to face me. I didn't want them to have an easy time that they were just going to meet by themselves and cut me off and feel good. I wanted them to look me in the eye to me to speak to them and say things that would hopefully get them to see outside of their preconceived categories. I wanted them to have to face me. I didn't expect it to hurt though, Um, but it did hurt because it's like, well, it's like, you know, again, if you have a conflict with your family, you can have a conflict with your family and you can say, well, their judgment is wrong. But even if their judgment is wrong, if they're your family, their rejection still hurts, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure most of the audience has felt that on some level, right? We we are a, a social species and we seek approval wherever it might be. And when you're part of a tribe for a long time, even if you no longer um, kind of associate with that tribe, to be excluded and almost cast out will be painful no matter what. It's it's like, I think every ex-Mormon probably comes across times where they doubt their ex-Mormonism, you know, where where you think, oh, well, have I, have I made the wrong decision? And it only takes a few seconds for you to remind yourself um, that there's tangible physical evidence for your, that you made your decision about. Right. Um, it's a part of you, you know, when you're, right. especially when you're born and raised that way. Right. Even, you know, I've already said several times that I never really considered myself to be a TBM, but still you're part of the culture. You're part of the history. You're part of, I mean, you're part of this thing. I mean, many things about Mormon theology and history that I really like and members that I really love. Um, And, but again, I keep saying this, I don't have any desire to go back or to be part of it. I don't regret what I've done, 
but it is still a painful part of your history, right? You can't yeah. deny that. Well, if we rewind a little bit, um, just to get back to where we were, you've been fired by BYU and, and they've almost lit a fire under you because not long after, um, we come to 1988 and the formation of the Mormons Women's Forum um, that you co-founded. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't my idea. I've always, again, seen myself more as a scholar um, than as an activist. Um, although as soon as I gave uh, my first Sunstone Symposium paper on women have had the priesthood since 1842 and with the Relief Society and everything, um, in a sense, I couldn't help myself. I became kind of an activist just by speaking out, right? But then yeah. in 1988, there were two women, I didn't know them, um, Kelly Frame and, and um, Karen Christ, who came to me and asked me if I would be part of the formation of the Mormon Women's Forum. They had both come to kind of a feminist awakening. They were both active in the church, and but they really became upset about women's issues. And they wanted to have a forum where we could just talk about it. And so they asked me if I would be a part of it. Uh, I said, sure. We had an initial meeting where, in fact, I gave a talk about women in priesthood again. And at first, the idea was that we wanted it to be a space where we'd have women who were active in the church, women who were kind of disillusioned, and we could actually have open discussion. But as you know, probably from your own experiences, it's so hard to have um, a discussion where people feel enough trust that they can actually be open and be on different sides. So immediately became very much a feminist group and immediately it became sort of seen as a radical feminist group. <laughs> That's how we were labeled. And for the first, um, so that was in 1988 in the fall, we had that priesthood debate actually in 89. So that was almost like a year later. And then that was when I lost my job at BYU. The Mormon Women's Forum for um, about the first mm, five or six years of, of its existence was extremely active. We had lots of different meetings. We would draw in hundreds of people. We had a publication. Maybe that lasted for six or seven years, but it's very hard to keep that kind of energy up. Um, what I have found in participating both in the Mormon Women's Forum and then later in Ordained Women is that it, you might start out by your hoping that you can bridge this gap and that you can have, you know, have a real discussion between mainstream Mormonism and kind of the more, you know, left wing kind of people. What usually happens is that you have a quick divide. And this happened with the 1993, uh, in fact, maybe it's 1993. So that's what, five years after the forum was started. Yeah. 1993, with the excommunication of the September 6th, you immediately have a polarization. People say either, I can't take this anymore. I don't want anything to do with the church and they just are out of there. And then others say, I'm sympathetic to the views of the September 6th, but I have family. I want to stay in the church, so I'm going to go undercover. I'm not going to participate in the Mormon Women's Forum or Sunstone or anything else anymore. And you have that polarization. 
And that's what happened. And then, you know, in a sense, after about 1993, late 90s, the Mormon Women's Forum, we went on for 30 years, but it never had that kind of vibrant public face that it had. It was more, yeah, let's have our yearly meeting where we discuss women's issues. Let's try to work for change. But it, it, it's just hard to, um, you just can't keep up that activism. People polarize. They either leave or they just go back to being more mainstream. And so if you think about um, 2013 was ordained women, it was another kind of upsurge of interest in women's issues. Really, you know, all this uh, kind of strong feelings for two years. And then Kate Kelly is excommunicated. 2014, you have the same polarization. Bunches of people leave the church. Others just say, I'm going to be invisible again. Yeah. So I've seen that as a pattern, James, that's happened. Yeah several times in my experience in Mormon feminism. It happened in the 70s with the ERA. It happened in the um, early 90s with Mormon Women's Forum and uh, September 6th. It happened again in 2013 with Ordained Women and Kay Kelly. So I don't know, are we gonna have another upsurge of Mormon feminism? I would say right now, there's almost nothing happening. No, um, and... I think right now the upsurge is for the LGBTQ community and that mm-hmm. um, Elder Holland's talk at BYU last year was kind of their part of their putting that back in its place because the church has bent so far and now realizes that you've got um, the Office of Inclusion being opened at BYU um, and that uh, lecturers at BYU are far more open uh, to students that are, as the church would say, suffering with same-sex attraction, uh, and and that that the world is moving in a direction that leaders like Oakes and Nelson and Holland just don't want it to move. And I don't know if they thought that they'd have died by the time the world got to where it is. By the time, <laughs> by the time we all looked around, and and were like, you know. I love this person and they love that person and that's not a problem, but they're not dead. And maybe that's the oath and covenant of the priesthood, or maybe that's their punishment. But um, yeah, they've got to they've got to live with it. I, yeah, I think that there are certain kinds of parallels with kind of feminism and the LGBTQ issues, in the sense that the church will come down really hard, and then it then it sort of starts to lighten up again, where they, like you said make statements that look as though they're going to be more inclusive and not so punishing. And then you have a talk like Holland's that seems to like take us back five or six years again. Yeah. But I don't know if that will happen with women. Certainly the women's issues have kind of been on the back burner. Um, I mean, the, the LGBTQ, you know, it used to just be gay issues. Yeah. And, but now LGBTQ, um, those are certainly more in the forefront than any women's or feminist issues. Yeah, and I think that the um, the way that the church is going, the last 10 years at least, they've made so many uh, changes to almost bring sisters to the forefront. It started started in the late 2000s when they started to change 
the format of ward councils even um, mm-hmm. and to to have sisters more involved in the leadership on a ward level and allowing the sisters to choose hymns and and amazingly enough you know who who would you think is the best person to choose the hymn on a sunday maybe the pianist who knows the hymns the best but no uh, when i was bishop i had to choose it and i had no idea i'd choose hymns that were awful you know that everyone would be singing and thinking why are we singing this you're singing that because i didn't have time to choose it properly and i just opened the book and said that one will do um but there were there were so many other people and the, the church allowed the sisters to choose hymns um and then the changes in the temple recently in the last 10 years where the sisters we we all know that it doesn't make a difference to the actual covenant what it is is it's almost shifting chairs on the titanic to make it look more um to appease maybe some of the sisters that were upset with the wording in the temple um but that they no longer have to covenant to follow their husband as their husband follows the lord but that both the husband and the wife covenant to follow the lord now um and it, it kind of gives that equal billing but with all of these things i still don't feel that they'll take the step um to not even move forward but to bring us back in line with the original teachings of the gospel with regards to the sisters and the priesthood um, no, and I and... think that what you're saying is really important. Um, so on the one hand, as you say, there have been some changes that I think are really good. The fact that women can sit on in on different councils, the fact that more women are praying in general conference or speaking, even though it still varies small percentage compared yeah. to the men, right? Um, the fact that uh, a lot of the language in the temple was changed so that you know for me the most important well the two most important are that um they don't they don't covenant to obey their husbands or hearken to them they kept changing that language obey hearken but now that's gone which i think is really important and also they're no longer made priestesses to their husbands um so they're the temple so there's the councils the temple changes more women talking and praying there's the idea that women can now be witnesses to all the ordinances. That's very important, yes. uh, both to marriages and to other things. The other thing is that um, that women are to counsel the young women, although they still don't hear confessions. But I notice that some people are saying things in the chat, which I agree with, because although I think those are all important, I do not think that they fundamentally change the big problem. Yeah. Because the big problem is women having priesthood. And I've I've argued this since 1984 and 85 that as long as women are not acknowledged, they're not part of the priesthood, they're always subordinate. So even like with the changes in the temple, there are two things that are, I think, significant there that people are so excited about the positive part that they don't acknowledge this, that men are still ordained as priestesses to God. Women are ordained as priestesses in the new and everlasting covenant. So, and, and what is not made clear, the covenant of what? I don't think it's the gospel. I think it's the covenant of eternal marriage. 
So, and in the temple ceiling, as far, I, I haven't heard it, right? Because I'm not in the church. So maybe yeah. I'm wrong. If anybody knows, you can correct me. But in the temple ceiling, it has changed a little bit. But men are supposed to still preside in love and, and kindness or righteousness or something like that. So you still have men presiding. And, and even though they talk about men and women as equal partners in the home, as long as men preside and they are the ones that have priesthood and women don't, then it, it's not equal. And that for me has always been the bottom line. And, and, and we can go, now go back to maybe the Heavenly Mother too, because even the way they talk about Heavenly Mother now, they don't talk about her as God the Mother who is involved in our creation and redemption but she is just one of the heavenly parents, kind of like in the proclamation on the family. So she does not have priesthood. She's not presiding. She's not, she's not one of the Godhead. She's simply the heavenly parent. Mm 